Thank you for tuning into the second episode of the Market Thieves podcast. We're glad that you are here to join us again. This episode is going to be about the 2008 financial crash, as well as the Genesis block and the Satoshi white papers. I am joined with my co-host, Finno, as well as Kudzi and Andreas on this one. So please enjoy the show. Hi, welcome to episode two of Market Thieves. Today we're going to be talking about the 2008 housing crisis, 2008 financial meltdown. I'm joined as always with my uh, host here, Fenno Kudzi, and today we're going to be joined with Andreas, who will be joining us on the second episode and in the future. Um, In the last episode, we basically went over how we got into the crypto space, so I'm just going to sort of open it up and uh, allow you to get to know Andreas a little bit more. So um, how did you sort of get into cryptocurrency, and uh, what's your background with it? Uh, I mean, I think, like most people, I first really heard about cryptocurrencies shortly before the 2017 spike. It sort of entered, you know, mainstream lexicon, people talking about Bitcoins, and was sort of curious about you know exactly what they were talking about. No one really had any idea um, how to explain it. So I did a little bit of research and was interested in getting into the market, but exchanges weren't really nearly as accessible as they are now. So we just sort of sat and watched when I was working in real estate with my coworkers, uh, just watched the price climb and climb and climb in 2017. And then, you know, drop back down in December. And it was early that next year, we started figuring out you know, what exchanges were trustworthy and which ones we wanted to go with to start playing in the market a little bit. And then from there, you know, got into some altcoins and it's just sort of snowballed from there. So it's a pretty interesting concept all the way around and it's, you know, held my attention ever since. All right. And fellas, how are you guys doing? I'm good. I just got off of work. Thriving. It's been uh, quite a week, all time highs all around. So uh, in good spirits. All right. So, uh, yeah, today we're going to be uh, talking about the 2008 housing crisis. Uh, first, we're going to sort of open it up with uh, just telling the story of how it happened and sort of the steps that uh, were taken with the economy um, and sort of refreshing people's memories. I'm pretty sure most of you guys, if you're listening to this podcast or have any sort of interest in this space, um, you probably come from a traditional uh, stocks background or you sort of have a curiosity for it. I'm sure you've seen movies like The Big Short. Um, If you haven't, uh, that was released in 2015. Um, It featured Christian Bale, Ryan Gosling, and Brad Pitt. I'm pretty sure you've seen uh, previews and things like that for it. And then there's also another one that I actually didn't recently uh, see until recently called Margin Call, which was also a very good uh, movie that sort of told the story. So if you are a visual learner and you are looking for a little bit more entertainment, uh, definitely check out out The Big Short or uh, Margin Call. But the story basically starts uh, in 2004, 2006. Uh, Andreas has a, a background in real estate and because he's just, you know, a boss with economics. So we'll go ahead and, you know, this is going to definitely be palatable for you. Um, we're not going to just run through things and um, things that you don't understand. There's some terms and terminology that will definitely break down. But uh, in 2004, basically, people were uh, given loans for mortgages or uh, approved for things that they definitely shouldn't have been approved for. And 
Uh, the world didn't necessarily take notice until years after, but on an economic standpoint, there was very low re regulations on a global scale, uh, low interest rates, and uh, people were getting accepted with very low credit. Um, and mortgages were almost being passed out to anyone and almost everyone was qualifying. Yeah, I think the, the term is a subprime. Mortgages were being uh, given out in, in rather ridiculous quantities. And uh, if I remember, if anyone's seen The Big Short, there's like a, a scene there where they're talking about like basically these strippers who had multiple houses, mm -hmm. and uh, which is kind of wild to think. Um, I don't think stripping provides that uh, steady of an income, but these folks were approved for, um, you know, basically extended mortgages and then uh, some crazy financial instruments were kind of built around those mortgages. Um, and most of the financial services providers were involved in some capacity, whether it was insuring them, issuing them out, um, or even sort of kind of gambling on whether they'd work or not. So. Um, wild times. Uh, I would have loved to be able to sling some mortgages back in 2004. <laughs> yeah, one thing I, um, doing a little more research about this, I thought was really interesting is that there were um, a couple of laws that deregulated the financial system that sort of allowed this whole thing to happen. Uh, the one that really stuck out to me was the Financial Services Modernization Act of 1999, which allowed banks to use uh, deposits to invest in derivatives. And so you start seeing this risky behavior because they are more motivated to um, to acquire these mortgages that they otherwise wouldn't approve, so they could take that money and invest it, you know, in fairly risky uh, ventures. So I guess from like a bank standpoint, um, to my knowledge, there's levels to uh, getting to the point where you can start lending mortgages to people. You become an officer of some capacity in that space. Um, is that sort of, are those meetings private in a sense, like say, for example, if your coworker just works the front desk, there was no way that they would be able to smell what was going on. You know, that I'm not too sure about, um, the mortgages that I've been involved in, um, as a realtor, uh, we just sort of were on the back end. Um, and we learned mostly about this at closing, you know, that you have the loan approval process. And so there wasn't too much discussion as far as um my experience in the business but as far as who's discussing what um in other aspects of banking i mean there's a lot of flow of information going on between between people working in the same office so i have a question when these banks are doing this is there thought of an end game for them or do they see that this is coming quicker than expected because this is 2004 to 2006 we kind of let the leash off and they all go wild here. There we go. And then my question is, I don't know if Kudzi or T, you could answer it, is why, why do we start doing this with low interest rates, adjustable rate mortgages, and giving them out to people that have less? I know you just explained part of it, but how do the banks see that as making money? Is it just short-term money that they could, you know, right now or or is it they see they could get away with this for three years four years but and on the back end we all know what happened um i, I think this remains a problem in banking culture or like short-termism right when they see basically quarterly profits and so they will use whatever instrument or derivative or you know it gets much more complex than that um way to facilitate quick income 
So the incentive structure was so was that they were able to give out these mortgages and you know these guys were getting bonuses and getting paid and in the short term no one was thinking about what does this look like four or five years from now, right? You're thinking the next quarter I get this bonus and you're thinking the next year. I think what's crazy is, I mean, T pointed this out, this started in 2004 and went on for about four years before anyone sort of really kind of raised major concerns. And then the prelude to that is the deregulation that came, you know, leading up to the 2000s. So um, it wasn't like, you know, just they could just start doing this in 2004. There was a series of steps that allowed them to de deregulate and there was no oversight. And again, think about it, it went on four or five years before like, you know, anyone was like, whoa, 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 this doesn't make sense. Right. And you talk about red flags, like there's a gentleman named Angelo Manzillo. He was making a hundred million dollars a year from uh, loaning mortgages. Um, the SEC ended up investigating him and in his emails, he basically very early on said that it was a night, it would be, it would, this is going to turn into a nightmare, but then in public still continued to you know, go on and, and promote um, lending to people. Uh, he was basically um, the owner or high up at Countrywide Home Loans. Um, and basically, instead of being shut down altogether, they were just gobbled up by Bank of America. So this was the first sort of slap in the hand, slap on the hand instead of actually just shutting down the whole entire operation. But I think maybe at, even at this point in time, too, way too many people were, you know, sort of benefiting from what was going on so they just sort of let him pay a couple of fines a couple of fees and then they still continue to do what they did which was eventually send these uh, subprime mortgages to wall street and they were just basically starting to get repackaged down at the individual level when you're bank at this time what does a credit score have to do with you getting a loan if they're just giving them out are they using that as a like a scale of saying if what you're approved for on your loan or are they just literally just oh you make this you make this money you say you make this money it's all trust right at the that's what i'm assuming goes on at this point in time yeah i mean your credit rating is is basically i mean the they developed this algorithm that would show basically someone's ability through their credit history to repay borrowed money right and so what happens, you know, at lower credit scores, you can still qualify for the same mortgage you do, they're just gonna charge you more interest, right? Um, where this starts getting interesting um, with these uh, mortgage-backed securities is the banks didn't necessarily care. My understanding is they would approve these loans, they didn't care how risky they were because they were gonna package them up and sell them on a secondary market. So within whatever the time frame is, you know, a couple of days, maybe a week at the most, they would be repackaged and sold on the secondary market. So they were no longer liable for the individual mortgages in that security. And they were being sold as, you know, A plus rated loans when in reality, if you looked at the individual mortgages, which is what um, Christian Bale's character initially found in the big short, was that not only were these not A rated loans, they were subprime, they were very risky and uh, looking into the individual, um, those individuals who actually held those mortgages, their ability to repay was highly risky. But they didn't care because that was already sold on the secondary market. It was off their books. And so they washed their hands of it, made their money, and they just didn't care. Yeah, and you saw like a huge sort of line of just kick the can because they continued to make 
the issue somebody else's issue because it wasn't their issue anymore, like Andreas just said. And then even that on a national scale where people warned others of this is not good, this is no good, other countries would say, well, that's that country's issue, not mine, and we're going to continue to do uh, what it is that we do. Um, on a global scale, it was it's very interesting when I was looking at it because each country was sort of dealing with their own thing. Like um, with us, it was, of course, mortgages, and it funneled over to everyone else on a global scale. But at the time, because of the fact that finances were continuously being eased up on regulations, people were basically getting away with murder in other sectors too. So it sort of all compounded into what we saw in 08, which was we've officially knocked what I guess you could call stilts of what was going on and it all comes crashing down because nobody wanted to stop what they were doing, but they also didn't want to listen to individuals saying like what we're doing here could be detrimental and so detrimental that on a global scale, everybody suffers from this. So it just sort of on a sort of centralized versus decentralized or just even relating this to the crypto space real quick, um, it really makes you take a look at like maybe even in 2008 when we should have really took a hard look in the mirror about how the system works people just sort of packaged a band-aid on it and we continued life as we knew it in the financial space like nothing really changed like even earlier when Fino and I were talking about it he was like were there any laws or regulations that came out of this that really like made an impact and none that I researched that I was like this will make sure this never happens again because you still have financial um, analysis people saying that there's nothing stopping something like this happening again now it's not going to creep through like it did with subprime mortgages but it could also show its ugly head or ugly face in something else yeah there's, there's actually another really good movie um based on a book called too big to fail it's on hbo and it kind of gives a a, a mockumentary style take on sort of the players that were really sort of driving um, the 08 crash. Uh, so like Lehman and Bear Stearns and AIG and the role of the Fed and the Treasury in all of that. And uh, you know, at the end of the movie, it's kind of like the conclusion is like no one learned their lesson. Like no one really came out of 08 and um, said, wow, you know what? We have to A, increase regulation or sort of have better oversight. Um, we had some legislation. I think we, we touched on this last time, uh, like the Dodd Frank Act. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, attempts to sort of curb Wall Street and um, you know, sort of financial institutions from doing what is high risk behavior. But I think this ties you know closely to our conversation last time about the Fed. If you know the issuing body, the Fed, engages in high risk behavior, uh, then who do you expect to regulate it? Right? You can't even. Ha expect our regulators who have not the best uh, understanding of finance um, to come in and tell these guys what to do um, and so yeah I, I don't know that any major lessons were learned from 08 uh, we got some great movies <laughs> and, um, 
other than that, though, that there's really been no major, you know, regulation to come from that. And I think they said only one guy was arrested from this whole thing. I think that was at the end of the big short. They were like, oh, and only one man was arrested. So it just sort of shows how the the system just didn't necessarily, like, do anything more than, you know, publicly show these cases and give them a slap on the wrist, a little bit of public humiliation when they're leaving the courthouse. You know, people that have obviously been gravely affected by these individuals' actions, um, you know, as they leave the courthouse to go to their car, getting thing, uh, verbal insults hurled at them. But that was just about it. That was just about the most of what happened. Even within the research, one of the first people that, or one of the first entities that sort of pointed out what's going on was uh, BNP Paribas of France. And they basically told the United States, like, hey, this is bad. But you had people like Alan Greenspan say, well, yeah, no, like, we're still going to continue to do what we do. That's not our problem. Like, if you have a problem with it, that's fine. But we're still going to do what we do over here. And this is basically the makeup or the model that I feel like people like Satoshi or if it's a he or her group of people looked at this because even at the very end of the crash the white paper came out just a month later on the 30th and it was like maybe we should do this but that went totally underneath the radar but you also have to think about you know this isn't something that you think of overnight how long was the person that wrote the white paper taking a look at these things? Did they notice it as early as people that we know personally could account to say we have a problem here? And then taking maybe even two, three years to come up with a solution, but it just shows that even that solution sort of was pushed off to the side because life continued as we knew it. We just called it recovery. Um, So I guess one of the things that is of concern is you know if this does happen again or it's presented in a different way where we see detriments like this um, do you guys think that people will finally take notice as far as like blockchain technology is concerned or do you think that we're sort of looking at the fed packaging up ideas of blockchain and sort of like working on their own tech to sort of keep the pulse or the blood flowing through what they've uh, created throughout, you know, basically the history of this country as we discussed in the last episode. So I think, you know, we're now, what, 12 years from, um, or almost 13 from, from 08. And the last, you know, the response to 08 was stimulus, right? But it was corporate stimulus. So it wasn't like last year we had stimulus go out to people. Everyday people received money and that was the response to the crisis, right? And so I, I personally see, I feel like, you know, we see a pattern behavior here where the U.S. is under or not prepared for a certain situation and the response is quote-unquote stimulus or the printing of uh, fiat money. Um, it hasn't been to turn to or to look to how do we change a system, how do we revolutionize it, how do we, you know, apply blockchain technology. Um, I, I, I felt that there's a resistance from like the traditional Wall Street players and regulators to look to innovation and in tech up until maybe recently now where they see they can make a profit and they're quote unquote coming into the game. But um, 
I think it's going to take a momentous shift, um, maybe even a third event before we see adoption of something like blockchain um, by the masses to really understand why the old system doesn't work. But that's going to have to come from, basically, it's going to have to be a grassroots movement the way, you know, like a totally, truly democratic currency to circumvent these central financial institutions. Because they are, I mean, one of the biggest reasons with adoption is the SEC, it keeps slapping down Bitcoin. And I mean, there's been some big changes and movement in the right direction. But I find, I always found it highly unlikely that they were just going to totally legitimize it because it would completely ruin their current paradigm, which would not work to their advantage. And they're the ones that make the rules. So there would have to be true mass adoption before we see any true change. And now that we're seeing some institutional investment, I think that's, you know, big, big money coming into it is an indication that we're moving in the right direction. But I think that's what actually has been holding us back since 2008. It's always been a great idea, but those who have the most to lose are the ones currently in power. Sure. They have no incentive to change. Yeah. And also, correction, uh, earlier I said uh, Alan Greenspan is actually Hank Paulson that was basically saying we're going to continue on. Uh, doing what we do, which he was the Secretary of uh, Treasury underneath Bush Jr., um, prominent Wall Street figure, and basically helped uh, Bush Jr. with his administration. Um, basically, one full year later, after the BNP Paribas uh, whistleblow, Lehman Brothers uh, started to go into some turmoil. Did anyone want to sort of walk us through the steps of Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, AIG? So essentially you had um, these two big banks, um, Lehman and Bear Stearns, who uh, a lot of their, well, you saw falling share price, right? So basically declining share price, um, and that became a major concern. Uh, for executives at this bank, like I think if it dropped, they went from like being like thirty dollars a share to like six dollars a share over the course of like um, six to twelve months. And in a case like that, you know they kind of needed someone to help finance them. So either another bank to come acquire them, or in the movie Too Big to Fail, they actually go through. They actually wanted Warren Buffett to come in and like infuse cash um, because they're basically just bleeding cash, and um, shareholders had no faith in the company. And at that point in time, uh, in an unprecedented move, um, and this kind of goes to a lot of like the interconnectedness of Wall Street, um, Hank Paulson formerly worked at Goldman, so he had ties and knew some of these executives, and so they were trying to broker a deal where basically um, one of these you know banks would be saved, and one did actually like basically get the, the Fed and the Treasury essentially influenced and pushed for one of these banks to be saved uh, and then the other basically they were like well we can't set this precedent that anytime a major financial institution is underwater we're making phone calls and pulling strings for them to be saved and eventually it led to the the fall of Lehman um, and the, where their share price basically went to zero there were there was no help from the Fed um, and uh, another third player was AIG, who was insuring a lot of these uh, credit vault swaps and mortgage-backed securities, uh, and they also found themselves in a really tough financial situation. And uh, what eventually happened, actually, is all the major financial institutions got an infusion from cash of cash from the Fed, 
and we're told like basically you're gonna take this money, you're gonna take this loan, uh, the stimulus, um, you're gonna continue to give out loans to everyday people, and that was the first time you know we saw the Fed basically act as a major sort of uh, player in financial markets, which is unprecedented in a laissez-faire you know type economy where the government and the economy are supposed to be pretty separate. Um, but because you had these three major institutions sort of struggle, you had to have basically the Fed come in. Otherwise, uh, it would have been a complete disaster for the rest of the world. Yeah. And from the research I did, it says that, you know, basically Hank Paulson came in and, and got all those banks to have a meeting together, which is exactly what we talked about the first episode all over again. And also people like him having prominent uh, relations or being a prominent figure in a bank and then going into government and then basically governing exactly what he's come from. And so it just also shows that this has been going on for decades and decades because when we talked about the panic in the first episode, that is exactly what they did the first time. And it's all the same major players, which made me laugh. It's like J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley. All those guys were basically called into a meeting late in the night, and they're like, what do we need to do here? Their proposal was to get Barclays to gobble up 50% of Lehman, and then the other half would just sort of be dissolved. But then, you know, the response in the morning was, from England, no, we're not doing that. We're not going to take on that responsibility. And then the Fed has to step in. And basically, once again, like you said, in Lehman's terms, give them a slap on the wrist and the show goes on. There was an argument, I remember, with the whole, you know, the TARP program, the Troubled Asset Relief. Um, there was an argument made. It was like if they had just taken that money and paid off everyone's, they would have been able to pay off basically every mortgage in America, which would have solved the problem and freed up a ton of money to infuse into the economy. I mean, you think about the disposable income of your average American now not having a mortgage. I don't know why they didn't do that. Well, I mean, I know why they didn't do that because they're never gonna help out the little guy. They're always gonna help out the people at the top. And the whole reason, like, I mean, regulations are by and large, I mean, we need them, but it's also kind of a joke because the regulators who write the laws are usually then they retire from public service and are hired into private practice with the firms that they were enforcing for the last 15, 20 years in their, you know, in their career. So, you know, it's just a giant scheme at the top and it's almost never going to benefit the actual average mortgage holder. But I, I don't know, because do you think that I actually would have solved the problem by paying off those mortgages? I don't think so. I mean, the there's a, a few issues because the, the, Number one, uh, sort of mortgage and housing providers, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the government stepped in and you know bought them right away. So I think that gave a signal to all the banks that like, oh, you know, worst case scenario here, there's no way we, you know, you're, we're quite, quite literally too big to fail. The you know the Fed will come in and and buy us. And so I think I mean we're talking about whilst you know, the mortgage backed securities were a huge sliver of their business they still have all other sort of functions where you know that they still need to run and operate where the capital they took you know they basically took that money and put it in other parts of the business rather than even addressing the mortgage issue um, because the sad part is there were a ton of foreclosures still right and, you know the the fallout of even though this money was given to these banks to continue to give out loans thousands if not you know 
you know, probably a couple million people still went, you know, lost their homes and had foreclosures. Um, had that money gone directly to the mortgages or to the people? I mean, I, I don't know that people would have used that money to pay off their mortgage because I think we saw human tendency was we have people with getting two or three mortgages, right? So that was the other thing where That's a good point. Um, people were going out and getting multiple mortgages and that's sort of like this uh, American greed type thing, right? Where it's like Americans kind of have this insatiable um, tendency to, to either spend or, you know, go too much. And I think if you think about that era, right, this was like the, when we had like supersize me, right? Mm -hmm. Do you guys remember growing up with like you could supersize a meal? Like that's like the typical American thing. And so it's like, oh, like, you know, I get a mortgage. I'm not going to get one house. I'm going to go buy four, right? And that's what people were doing. Um, so yeah, I think that there's greed at the top, but there was also an element of greed that came, I think in, in the middle and at the bottom. Um, and I think that's the perfect segue to think about like the, the white paper when it came out in 08, I think was a function of someone looking at the whole system being like, how do you rid, um, the system of greed, of abuse and of the lack of transparency that you know Hank Paulson and 13 guys get in a room and then they make these decisions that are supposed to sort of impact everyone and I think 08 was like peak American greed uh, if you really think about it on all levels and the government stepping in kind of giving money out um, did not solve uh, much it just sort of punted the Ponzi scheme um, and I think we're currently kind of seeing a continued punt right we, we haven't addressed most of these issues um, I think there are a lot of questions right now around, okay, we, we, we're printing trillions of dollars. Um, how did we get here and what's going to be the answer in five years? And I think also, you know, to Kudzi's point and to your point, Fenno, it's like, what was the solution? It's like, there's, I don't know if he's one person, is she, the, they, I don't know. But, you know, this white paper that was literally published in October 31st 2008 which was just literally a month after the crisis hit rock bottom um that was maybe that individual's solution to the problem so it wasn't necessarily something that someone else could come in and fix right away and maybe their voice probably wouldn't have been even heard if they did but this was a solution to the issue i feel i mean it sounds like an, it's an amazing solution in theory and practice and everything and I mean, smart individual, like, trying to think, I just keep thinking, why, 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 and then this person laid it all out in eight simple pages, pretty much, you, we can make this happen, and the system's in place, and it's, I, I think it's a, it's a solid fix, it's a solid solution to, to all these problems, inflation, and you haven't, you know, you have incentives for the people that mine this, and and do all this and the and the transparency that you know we were talking about it earlier you could see who holds all this you could you could see who who moves it around there's there's nothing hidden about it maybe besides the actual individual itself but it's it's super transparent and it addresses almost all the issues of what we previously talked about in the last episode and then this one in the beginning of this episode as well and just a sort of side note, you know, the burning question is, do people think that the white paper was derived, derived by 
uh, many people? Do you guys think it was one person? Do you think that uh, Satoshi sort of goes underneath a pseudonym and that's not his real name? Like, what are your theories? Because there's always, that's the one thing that's still the burning question is it's like, this is amazing technology that's sort of moving us forward. Um, and there isn't necessarily a public face that has come forward and said, oh, yeah, this was my invention. So what do you think are the intentions behind that? Um, obviously, one, for security, because if I made this, I'd probably be thinking, wow, someone's coming for me because this is the end-all, be-all or the kill switch for uh, you know, the current economic system as we know it. Maybe not in my lifetime, but I will be the guy or gal that sort of hit, you know, pulled the plug. Um, what are you guys' theories? I, I mean, for me personally, I think I haven't looked that much into that, but I, I like to think it's a collective. And the fact that it is so anonymous and unknown, I think, just alludes to the fact of the whole thesis of the white papers in general and gives it that trust. Like, why, why, you don't know who these people are, but the system that they laid out for you is like, step one two three this is what you do and you follow it and this is working just trust us and the way this process works and the way it's grown and whatever it has created and it's you know in its young years it's it's i mean there's not really that much that's failure in it and it's mostly been success and that just speaks to the white paper in general and the whole theory of what we just talked about and how it goes right off of it and yeah, maybe they were holding it for a while and the timing of it couldn't have been any better. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it's a group of people. Uh, the white paper says we uh, several times. So I, I don't think it's any one individual, although there's uh, there's that guy, Craig Wright, I think, who's tried to come and claim to be Satoshi, but uh, everyone kind of thinks that's a joke. Um, but I think, you know, the beauty of the white paper is it builds on years and years of, computer science, uh, years and years of economic theory, and then 08 was kind of like the perfect time to unleash it. Um, because I think there was, you know, and Andres, you talked about this, right? Like the grassroots need for a movement like this. Um, the response to 08 was Occupy Wall Street, right? There, there, there was that, which, you know, my biggest issue with a lot of like revolutions like that is like, what is the solution, right? I mean, if every person who was into Occupy Wall Street was a Bitcoiner, uh, you know, we would have had this run that we're having now 10 years ago. Um, but I think the group of people that came out and put this white paper together, they looked at, um, you know, years and years of computer science to solve something. Then they looked at the timing and the moment. And I think it's so significant to you highlight like October 31st, like what was happening in the world then? And it's like, oh, the world was quite literally kind of on fire. And here is an assemblance of something that can like potentially solve or address most of the issues that were happening so yeah I, re I remember I was just graduating from college and I was trying to get an explanation from some about anyone about what was happening at the time and no one really had a good um, really any good explanation for me at the time except for uh, one of my professors basically said this is sort of a, a brief look behind the curtain where you have masses of people realizing that our currency isn't backed by anything. And the value is is really our belief in the system. And when that belief falters to a significant degree across economic markets, the consequences could be catastrophic. 
And I mean, the world was collectively losing it for a while and it took a long time to recover from that. And it's just kind of surprising to still hear people, you know, these detractors of cryptocurrencies in general that, you know, it's not a real currency, but it's no more, I would say there's a lot more merit to it than any fiat currency that took serious tumbles in 2008. Yeah. And as uh, Fenno said, you know, the, the white paper was only eight pages long and it had a couple of uh, sections in it. So we'll just sort of go down uh, each section and sort of wrap it up and that'll help us healthily segue into um, our next episode, which will really sort of block, uh, excuse me, break down blockchain. Actually, I think right before the intro is the abstract, right? Yes. And mm -hmm. that to me is all anyone really needs to read to understand what this thing is. It's a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system, right? And then it goes through why it works, hash functions, and I'm sure we'll get into that. but. In the introduction is a simple overlay of, you know, um, I think the the concept of peer-to-peer -peer value transfer. And I actually think of, um, you know, I, I don't want to incriminate myself, but LimeWire, right? Or, yeah. or BearShare Bear or, or, or Napster, right? <laughs> they that... basically used to, if someone had a song, you'd upload it onto the server and we'd all share it, right? And like... So that, I love that. I live, I think we all did. We probably is this, all. Is this why we're all so keen and privy to this now? Because we were peer-to-peer <laughs> -peer sharing all this stuff back in the day. Or right. like movies too on mm -hmm. a pirate bay. Exactly. So I think if you think about generationally, we grew up in, in this sort of, um, I guess, ecosystem where as technology was coming you know, to the masses and we all probably had it, we were very comfortable always exchanging things virtually with one another. Maybe not money as much, but I think about, yeah, we shared files online all the time. And, you know, when I first read the white paper, I was like, peer to peer, what does that remind me of? And I was like, oh, LimeWire. Yeah. And we, that, that was illegal, but um, everyone sort of accepted it and, and enjoyed it. And I think Bitcoin, if you really think about the white paper, is like a function of, um, that sort of same energy of can we circumvent the general system and have this way that we distribute value? Values can be broken down. I think that's the one thing that people are really confused about when you tell them to invest. You know, they're like, Bitcoin's at like thousands of dollars. How am I supposed to own one of these? That's I hate when people tell me invest in Bitcoin. It's not practical. 56,000 at the time of this recording. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, how am I supposed to buy one of those? How, why are people, why is everyone telling me to, to buy one of those? But you know, this portion of the white paper basically broke down that like, unlike the dollar, you can, you can buy portions of it. And yeah. That's a really good point. Um, you know, and as of last year, so when you think about quote unquote investing in Bitcoin, um, people will have always taken the view of like investing in a traditional asset where you have to buy, you know, shares. Um, but last year and over the past few years, you've seen fractionalized shares, right? So if uh, Amazon costs $2,000, you don't have to buy $2,000 of an Amazon stock. You can buy a fractionalized version of that share in the same way. You can buy um, fractionalized smaller units of Bitcoin. Um, the smallest unit is Satoshi, um, and that's like one-eighth uh, of a Bitcoin, right? And so... I think that's such a fundamental thing to explain to people and the, the white paper um, is a good starting point but then people often jump to price and getting in it and it's like oh no it's divisible into smaller units and um, that's 
uh, a very critical thing to educate people about. Yeah, because <laughs> it's, it's very unrealistic for most folks. That's the first question that they ask, where it's either how am I supposed to invest in this or T, what are you doing if you're saying that you've invested in, in this coin and it's Spice like thousands of dollars. Yeah. Stack sats. Yeah. Honestly, that was the biggest hurdle to me when I first started uh, talking with my coworkers about it. I was like, well, Bitcoin's a thousand dollars a coin. I don't feel like investing in something so speculative, you know, at a thousand dollars. And that just was not a conversation that anyone was having. Of course, I learned about it later on as I registered for exchanges and went from there. But I still think that is a hurdle for people that don't really understand like how you can invest in it. I know my parents would look at it and be like, yeah, I'm not spending $55,000 on one Bitcoin, $56,000. Um, so once we get past, I think that, once we get past that sort of educational gap with a significant enough of the population, I think things will get really interesting. But in, in theory, I mean, the white paper is a combination of accounting, computer science, um, math, and even economic theory, which makes it really like something applicable for anyone to sort of get into and, and enjoy. Yeah, and then he just sort of wraps it up with uh, conclusions and, you know, it sort of just circles back to what we've been talking about as a whole um, in the last episode and then the, the second half of this one is that, you know, this creates a peer-to-peer -peer network. It incentivizes everyone to work together for the greater uh, goal of whatever that may be, whether it's new protocol, it's um, miners working together to uh, gain incentive of solving blocks, um, and then just in general, the energy or the vibe around crypto is that it's a very communal uh, piece of work where you know you don't need to have much to get started, and that can also be attested to the way that you can. Um, buy Bitcoin or any other coin on the market in fractions. I mean, I can't tell you how many people um, would probably have loved or would love to get involved in the traditional market, but can't really wrap their head around, you know, even 32 bucks a share when their, you know, bills need to be paid, etc. or there's different income levels that we're dealing with here. I think in the past, people have looked at stocks in general as a, as a rich man's game. And I think that what Bitcoin does is um, it basically allows anyone to get in at any price. If I were to go on a coin exchange and wanted to buy four bucks of Ethereum, I can, you know, or two bucks of Bitcoin. I hope you guys enjoyed episode two of the Market Thieves podcast with myself, Finno Kudzian Andreas. Please go ahead and give us a follow on our Instagram page, market underscore thieves, as well as our Twitter, market underscore thieves. And you can find us on YouTube, Spotify, and iTunes. In the next episode, we will be getting into understanding the blockchain. So make sure you're here to tune into that and we'll see you next time. Thank you.